You are listening to the Vine Church Sermon Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more information about the Vine Church, please visit our website at www.thevinemadison.org. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. This is God's word. Uh, Over the weekend, some of you I know were praying for us as well, but we had our very first ever uh, fall retreat as a youth group, uh, the basement. Uh, We had some great leaders who sacrificed uh, an evening of coldness. Uh, as well as 16 students who came with us. Uh, But we braved the weather. Uh, I think it got down to 32. There's a picture of all of us uh, on the beach of Lake Kaganza State Park. But it was an awesome time uh, together uh, around the campfire, snuggling in close, trying to stay warm. Uh, But we took a look at uh, being all in for Jesus and what does that mean and how can we live that way um, as followers of Christ. And so Thank you so much, leaders, for making that possible. Students, um, uh, thank you so much for coming. It was a joy and a treat to do that uh, together. So thanks for your prayers. But we're uh, this morning going to continue in uh, 1 John. Uh, oh, yes, and if you have a sermon Q&A, go ahead and you can fire that up. This is, a, a, I think, a text. <laughs> There's some interesting things in this text. So if you have questions, go ahead and fire it away. Uh, we'll see if we can uh, have time at the end to answer anything. Um, but we're going to continue through First uh, John, looking at the Apostle John's words, um, really this idea of assurance uh, that we have um, in our relationship with Christ. And uh, it's going to be no different uh, today as we uh, take really a word of hope um, from uh, the, these words from John. But when I was in third grade, um, as you do as a third grader, you take some geography tests. And one of the tests that we took, I remember, was a U.S. states uh, geography test. Um, and it just so happened that at the time, remember when you had like pencil boxes and you kept all your pencils and crayons? I don't know if you're coloring in third grade, but you kept all those things, scissors and whatever, in your pencil box. Well, my pencil box was the entire United States of America <laughs> with every state named. And so I accidentally left my pencil box out during this geography exam, and it was um, perhaps interesting or surprising, but I got every single state right. But my teacher was not a fool. She knew my abilities, or perhaps lack of abilities, and so she took me aside, and she said, James, did you use your pencil box and cheat on this test? And this was many years ago, but I, over 30 years ago, but I, I've yet to forget this moment in my life because I was crushed with this overwhelming guilt for what I'd done. The shame of doing something so clearly wrong. And though I had parents who loved me and were just fantastic parents, it was that day in third grade where the thought of going home 
was fearful. Because I knew my teacher had a conversation with my parents, and she had relayed my wicked, evil, cheating, scheming ways, right? And so in my third grade mind, I possessed this like sinking, desperate feeling of just being unforgivable to my parents. They'd never forgive me. This feeling of being un, unworthy of my parents' love. And, and, and I really felt this, that I would get home in third grade, and all my bags would be packed, and like I'd be banished from home. Of course, none of that happened. My parents didn't respond like that. But that feeling was real for me of feeling unforgivable and unworthy and deserving to be sent away forever. As we continue in 1 John, as we come into chapter 2 today, John's an elderly apostle. He's perhaps in his 70s or or 80s, but he's walked a long time with the Lord. And so he writes to this troubled church with really fatherly tenderness. And you see that oozing out in, in, chapter, in verse 1 where he says, my little children. This is tenderness of an older man. My little children. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. This is a, a loving father warning his child away from danger. Like, don't touch the stove. It's hot. Don't sin. Don't sin. And we saw last week in chapter 1 that sin is destructive, right? Sin is serious. Sin breaks or destroys our fellowship with God and with one another. We experience that, right? Sin is serious. And when we walk not in the light as he is in the light, we really do plunge into a darkness. A darkness that often says, at least to me, that I'm unforgivable. That I'm unlovable. That I deserve to be sent away from God. And so John here in our passage says rather plainly and forcefully and also tenderly, do not sin. But is that even possible? Is that even possible? Because I know in my own life I continually struggle with sin. My sin back in third grade is still my struggle today. I want to cheat to get ahead. I struggle with sin over and over again in my life. Is John expressing that there is a way that we can prevent sin from controlling our lives? Or is John just being idealistic in thought? Well, John's going to give us two pictures of Jesus in our passage that Jacqueline just read. We're going to see a picture of Jesus' advocacy and a picture of Jesus' example. Advocacy and example. And through these two pictures, we find that John will offer us a word of comfort to the sinner. There is profoundly good news for the sinner this morning. But there's also these words that calls the Christian to respond to a rightful living in light of the comfort that Jesus provides to the sinner. So there's comfort, yes. There's also a call to respond. There's a call to action. Let's pray as we dive in this morning. Jesus, we ask that you, by the power of your spirit, would open our hearts to your word and your word to our hearts. We need you, that we might see you most clearly in these few moments that we share together. Lord, would you speak to us and transform us as we seek to become more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in front of us, if I just said, was we have these two pictures. 
of, of Jesus' advocacy and of Jesus' example. And so we'll look at, at both of these uh, together, and then we'll, we'll be done. But first, uh, this, this, uh, looking at Jesus as, his, uh, as our advocate, which really is this, this, this word of comfort to the sinner. And we can see it here in verse 1, if you're with me, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. John writes, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And I got a period in my Bible, but John continues on with this next expression, but if anyone does sin. All right, hold up, John. Which is it, right? Like these sentences can give us a little bit of whiplash of what's going on as John is talking. Because we know if we read back in chapter 1, which I've always just said, that there's a seriousness of sin, right? John took the time to spell that out, how sin breaks the fellowship that we have with God, that our aim should not be to sin. So why now, as we go into chapter 2, does he so quickly blow it and give like a way out if we were to sin? But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, he says, with the Father, Jesus Christ. Again, I think it's helpful to remember that John is an older man. He's an elderly uh, a, a saint. He's a senior saint. He, he's likely discipled hundreds of people in his life up to this point. He's walked alongside lots of people in their journey with Christ. And they, he's probably said these exact same words to them, do not sin, Christian. And he's probably seen some of their responses that when he says, Christian, do not sin, that they immediately despair. I mean, how many of you, when you read that verse 1, you know, do not sin, Christian, how many of our immediate response is just to throw up our arms and exclaim, well, I guess there's no room for me at the table. There's no shot I'm going to make it in the Christian life. Like, why try? My sin is, is too great. It's too overcoming. I, I'm too unforgivable. I'm too unworthy of his love. And so often, I know in my own life, like in my sin, I, I just go to despair. So John, as any loving father does, immediately comforts the Christian as he calls them to, and exhorts them in the same breath. In the same breath, he exhorts them, do not sin. He also says in that same breath, do not despair. There's comfort. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous in other words, don't despair when you sin. A provision has been made. There's hope. And why is there hope? Because you have an advocate. And who is our advocate? It's Jesus, right? An advocate here is, is really a, a legal term. It's, it's one that's called to defend you. So when it says that Jesus Christ is our advocate, we can think in this image of a defense attorney. So let's think about that image of a defense attorney. Forbid it that you're charged with a crime, but for the sake of this, imagine that you've been charged with a crime right now in this moment, and the courts assigned you a defense attorney. And so if that's you in that moment, like what do you expect of your defense attorney? What do you expect them to do for you? Well, we want them to plead our case, right? We want them to prove our innocence and win back our freedom. That's what we expect, right? I like that. We can banter. We can go back and forth. That was so well-timed. We want our defense attorney to win the case for us. 
Peter. It's true. But what is our case in the heavenly courtroom of God? Are you innocent? Does Jesus even have a case to argue before God the Father? Does Jesus go into this, you know, heavenly courtroom with a stack of case folders and he pulls out the one mark Davenport, that's my last name, Davenport, and he's like, okay, God the Father, sorry, again, Davenport here, Uh, but he's really a good kid. He just, this one thing keeps kind of messing up. I'll talk to him, but just, just one more chance, God. One more chance for Davenport. And even if that does succeed in this appeal, like how comforted would you be if that's the approach? Right? Wouldn't you just be left wondering how long until you reach the end of God's patience? When the father finally says, that's it. No more leniency for Davenport. It's a scenario that's not filled with hope. It's actually very despairing. It's only a matter of time. So so here's what I want you to see in in John's words. Does does John say that the advocate stands there as Jesus the persuasive? Does it say that? No. Does John say that our advocate stands there as Jesus the merciful? No, it doesn't. It says our advocate stands there as Jesus the what? The righteous. The righteous. A defense attorney's best chance in gaining a favorable verdict is not tugging the heartstrings of jury or judge, relying on the emotions of the court. Absolutely not. The absolute best way for a defense attorney to gain their client's acquittal is to show how the law demands it. And this is exactly how Jesus advocates on our behalf. Verse 2, it says, Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. When's the last time you snuck propitiation into a a conversation? I don't know if I've ever said that word out loud before today. The word propitiation, it it means that a, a claim against you has been fully satisfied. A charge brought has been fully met or satisfied. So, for example, if you've caused a a traffic accident doing several thousand dollars worth of damage to someone else's car, they have a charge or a claim against you, right? But when you pay in full the damage you've caused, that person, in a sense, is propitiated. They no longer have a claim, a charge against you. It's been paid. It's been satisfied. So when that's applied to the gospel, every ounce of penalty that you and I deserve for our sin is poured onto Jesus. Jesus propitiates the wrath of God against our sin by fully satisfying the full penalty in our place. You with me? So therefore, in this heavenly courtroom before God the Father, Jesus says, in effect, God the Father, you cannot hold Davenport's sin against him. God the Father says, why? And the Son responds, for it would be unjust For you to take two payments for his sin. For I've already paid and suffered and satisfied the full penalty of his sin. Therefore, there's no penalty left to be unpaid. Jesus does not appeal to the mercy of God. Jesus appeals to the justness of God. 
Which is why back in verse 9 of chapter 1, we know this verse, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and merciful? No. He is faithful and kind? No. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. God forgives our sin not because he's uh, lenient, but because he's just. And the law of God demands your acquittal if you're found in Christ. That's wild stuff, right? I mean, think about the entirety of the Old Testament scripture. The vast amount of Old Testament sacrifices having to be offered to satisfy the laws of God. It would be interesting to actually go through all those sacrifices and how many were actually offered. When we think of the temple, we think of a shiny, beautiful place of worship, right? And I think it was, but it was also a bloody, horrific place of killing animals. Day after day to fully satisfy the demands of the law because of their sins. And now all of that is fully satisfied in the person of Jesus once and for all. The propitiation of our sins. So how does this advocacy of Jesus offer comfort to us? The thing I want to encourage you with is that it helps you deal with the guilt of our sin. David reminded us of it in our confession and insurance and through song. But the advocacy of Jesus allows you to deal with the guilt of your sin. The, many, the reason I think many of us struggle in processing the guilt that perhaps we feel in our sin is that we simply believe that God is merciful. And that might sound weird for me to say that. Because God is merciful, very merciful. It's in his mercy that this whole cross thing comes to bear with Jesus. But it's not only God's mercy that demands right standing before God, it's God's justness which demands it too. So therefore, where is our guilt? Where is it? It's been paid on the cross. It's been nailed to the cross. It's been dealt with, fully satisfied with our advocate, Jesus, the righteous. And if you're in Jesus, your advocate is Jesus, your guilt has already been paid. It is no more. That's why Paul over and over argues that there's no, no, no condemnation for those who are in Jesus. It's why Paul says, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? The cross is far more than receiving forgiveness of sins, far more. For Jesus not only grants us forgiveness for our sins, he grants us his very righteousness. So when God looks on you, he sees not the guilt or or your sin, he sees Christ in you. He sees someone not unforgivable or unworthy of love or deserving to be sent away. No, he sees someone beautiful and perfect and righteous. He sees Christ, the righteous, in you. Christian today, do you believe that? Do you believe that? If you don't, it's because rather than listening to the voice of our advocate, you're listening to the voice of our accuser. And there is an accuser. There's an advocate and an accuser. And John, the same John in Revelation, speaks of our accuser using that very language. He says there's one, Satan, who accuses in Revelation 12 the whole family of God of the wrongs that they've done. You see, the voice of the accuser is saying, you call yourself a Christian, but look at what you've done. 
You're unforgivable. You're unlovable. You deserve to be sent away. But with Christ as our advocate, we can turn towards our accuser and respond and say, of course I have done those things. God already knows that. And in Christ, he sees Christ in me, the righteous. Some of us need to hear this this morning. The basis for our salvation is not in our perfection, but it's in his propitiation. The basis of our salvation is not our perfection. It will never work, but it's entirely in his propitiation. Therefore, we do not have to turn to despair in our sin. Rather, we stand and rejoice in our righteousness, our right standing with God. The voice of our accuser is frail and false. The voice of our advocate is sure and eternal. The hymn before the throne of God captures this in such a profound way. I just want to read it. I'm not a singer. But before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. Sounds like an advocate. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. When Satan tempts me to what? Despair. And tells me of the guilt within. Upward I look and see my advocate. I see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness. The great unchangeable I am, king of glory and of grace. One in himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. Aren't those beautiful words? They're scripture. They're true. God doesn't take us behind the woodshed to beat us up over our sin. That's not the picture. Because that penalty, that beating has already been paid by Jesus. You've been granted his righteousness. Don't despair. Rejoice and be secure in who you are in Christ. The advocacy of Jesus allows you to deal with the guilt of your sin. So while this first picture tells us of what is true of Jesus and what is true of those who put their faith in him, the second picture of Jesus as our example, it it tells us how we are to respond, how we are to live in light of that truth. Look with me at verse 3. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. I think, quite simply, we could sum this up, those three verses, by saying, the one who knows God walks like Jesus. The one who knows God walks like Jesus. And what does that walk look like? 
Well, certainly it doesn't mean that we throw on a tunic and choose 12 men to imitate us and saunter across stormy seas and die on a cross, right? Jesus is uniquely different from us. Our feet can't fit into his footprints. Our death isn't going to save anybody from sin. Jesus is uniquely different, which is why John Calvin notes that our walk is marked not by an exact reduplication of the details of his outward life, but rather by acting according to the spirit that moved within Jesus. And John qualifies in our verses that a spirit-filled life is characterized by an obedience to the commands of God. Look at verse 3. John says, and by this we know that we've come to know him if we do what? Keep his commandments. That's obedience. And obedience here is not a ticket uh, to our salvation, but it's a sign. It's a sign or an evidence of our salvation. For if we have a personal relationship with, with God, if we truly know him, then our desire is going to be to do as he commands. When I was in my early 20s, my grandfather um, passed away, and he was nearing 90. He lived a great life, and he was having kidney failure. He was having to receive dialysis every couple days. And he made the decision at some point as he was getting older that I'm not going to receive treatment anymore, which meant that within a week's time, it was of certain certainty that he would pass away. And so given that we knew his time was imminent, which is you know, a very bizarre place to be in, that you are in a room with somebody that you know will die uh, in a couple days or a couple hours, myself and all my family were, were there, and we all had our, our last conversation. We knew it was our last conversation with him in private. A dying man talking to him. And my grandfather was really special to me. We, we shared the exact same name, James Joseph Davenport. We had this special bond between grandfather and grandson. And I'll never forget his last words to me. He said, James, I want you to be a good man. I want you to be a good man and make me proud. Amen. We need more speak back. I like this. There's nothing terribly specific about what he told me in that moment, right? It's pretty vague. But I, I've never allowed myself 15 years later to forget those words of my grandfather. I, I want to be a good man. I want to make him proud of what I've done in my life. And if we have a personal relationship with God, if we, if we truly know him, then we'll desire to do what he asks of us. That we'll take seriously like that of me with my grandfather and just be diligent in doing of what he's commanded us to do. And in Jesus, he's not vague in his commands of the Christian. If you read through the Gospels, there's like 40 to 50 specific commands that Jesus calls his disciples to do. But we could sum it up as Jesus does himself that we are to love God and to love others. And this idea to, to love is very near the heart of the Apostle John. This book is very short. It's only 3,000 words. But I believe there's 14 times where the Apostle John says this command of to love God or others. It's an idea of to love that we will see in the weeks ahead of having to apply that in our own lives. But as we go back to verse 3, John says, And by this we know, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. How is keeping commandments or obedience the surest proof that we know God? Because I think it shows or reveals that God's at work in our life, right? 
When, when, when a life is changed, people notice. When the liar becomes honest, people notice. When the greedy becomes generous, people notice. When the drunk becomes sober, people notice. When the abuser becomes gentle, people notice. When lives are changed, people notice. And to me, the greatest validity of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is the changed lives of the early disciples. Every one of them went to their death, most of them martyred, believing what they knew about Jesus to be true. They could have changed course, but they didn't, and as a result, they lived differently. Peter was this brash, outspoken fisherman and becomes a mighty preacher for God. Matthew's this greedy tax collector, and he writes uh, one of the Gospels freely telling other people about Jesus. James and John are sons of thunder. There's arrogance there, but they become humble leaders of the early church. Saul is a murderer. He becomes Paul, one of the greatest missionaries ever. The life direction, every, every one of these early disciples was completely changed. And perhaps this is why Peter, I think, parallels John a little bit here in his book. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Sounds like John's words there. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for what? The will of God. No longer do these disciples live for themselves, but they live for a greater purpose and ambition of God. Which is why John says in verse 5, But whoever keeps his word, whoever obeys, in him truly the love of God is perfected. And perfected here is, is uh, it doesn't carry this like idea of sinless perfection, but of a completion, of a maturing into something. That there's a one-to-one connection between our obedience and our love to God. So as we experience his love through knowing him as our advocate, we return that love back to him in obedience. Which is why he says in verse 4, whoever says, I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. That is to say, when God commands you to do something and you ignore it, John concludes, well, you don't really know God. Those are strong words, right? For if you knew God, you would know that God is love. John speaks to that in chapter 4. That everything that God says and does and commands is for our best. And if you doubt that, just look back at the cross, at our advocate. And so in our disobedience to the commands of God, it reveals our lack of trust of the love that God actually has for us. It shows the cracks. Lately, a common refrain around our house, I have three littles, is this, Dad, you just make all the rules because you want to. (laughs) It's always followed up with this, you're not letting me do what I want to do. And this is when, th- this is after I say like, hey girls, it's time to brush your teeth. Or hey, let's clear your plate after dinner. Or heaven forbid, put a coat on before you go outside now, right? Not terribly harsh things. But it says, dad, you're not letting me do what I want to do. You're just making all the rules you want to. But don't we think this way about God? That he's harsh and his demands for our obedience. 
that he's withholding perhaps a happiness that we crave and desire. See, what, what my children lack to understand in those moments and what I lack to understand in my own relationship with God the Father is just how much he does love me and how in keeping these commands and obeying, this is really for my best, for my flourishing. When I say to my kids, put on a coat, as a father, I'm being loving because I want them to stay healthy and well, right? When God says, give to the poor or care for the widow or, or use language that's seasoned with salt, these are not commands of harshness, but of love for your best, for your flourishing. Our eternal loving father desires that we find and experience the abundant life. Which is why John will say later on in this epistle that the love, uh, this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are what? They're not burdensome, because they're for your best. The proof one knows God is one's desire to obey all of what he commands. And we see in this an example of Jesus, and he perfectly did this, right? And it's Jesus' example which calls the Christian, if you put your faith in him, it calls us to respond. The example of Jesus calls us into a conformity with his love and obedience to God the Father. And as we do, it dissolves our selfish ambition. The example of Jesus calls us into a conformity of his love and obedience. And as we do, it dissolves our selfish ambition we have in our hearts. It's at the cross where the perfect intersection of love and obedience meet. It's Jesus, not that he had any, but it's Jesus of of dissolving any selfish ambition. There's no self-ambition in the cross so that he might fulfill the purposes of his God the Father. And we see this in the moments leading up to it. In the garden before his arrest, he could have hid or ran or fought alongside Peter for his freedom, right? But he entrusted himself to God the Father and said, not my will, but yours be done. In the courts of the kings and judges, he could have defended and proved his innocence, but he entrusted himself to God the Father and said, not my will, but yours be done. And the unjust jeering and beating that he received on his way to the cross, he could have smoked them all with lightning bolts from heaven, but he continued to entrust himself to God the Father, not my will, but yours be done. In the final moments of his final breath as a, as a human, he could have thrown the nails out of his hands and feet and thrown them to the ground and just ascended to heaven, getting out of the sin-filled world once and for all. But he continued to entrust himself to God the Father, saying, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus lived a life so filled with love and obedience to God the Father that there is no room for selfish ambition. There is no room. There is no room. It's no longer what I want. It's what God desires. It's no longer my comfort. It's God's purposes. It's no longer my ambition. It's God's life in me. The example of Jesus calls us into a conformity of his love and obedience to God the Father, which dissolves our selfish ambition we have in our hearts. We've been given a word of comfort this morning. You don't have to despair in your sin. We can rejoice in the gift of righteousness. And in response to that, we've been called to action. 
to just solve the, the selfish ambitions we might find in our hearts and to walk as Jesus walked in perfect love and obedience. What we see he exemplified in his life. But will we do, will we do that perfectly? No, I don't think so. I know I'm not. We're not going to do that perfectly. But where we fail, may we learn to cherish repentance and faith. Looking to our advocate again and again and again and again. God's not looking to take you out to the woodshed. He's looking to welcome you back home. You have a loving father who stretches arms wide open, ready to receive you. Where you fail, repent and turn to him in faith. Let's continue to believe this gospel together. Amen? Jesus, we give you all praise this morning for your advocacy and for your example and how that points us to live as you've lived. Lord, help us where each one of us are at. Perhaps some of us are despairing in sin. Perhaps some of us are flooded with selfish ambition. Lord, I pray at the cross we would cry out to you, our advocate, for our help. Lord, help us to, 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 to realize in deeper, more profound ways of what you've already accomplished on the cross and that we have a life, abundant life in you. Lord, hope that be our hope and our joy. Help us to tell others of the life that we have in you. Lord, I love this church. Thank you so much for the brothers and sisters here. Lord, help us, help one another to strive after this gospel of you, Jesus, together. Amen. We'll go ahead, David, and we'll come for communion.